ACNFers, this episode is affiliately sponsored by Liquid IV. And I just got to say, this is a delicious way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities. Or if you just want to zhuzh up your water, why not? It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan of the lemon lime. Non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy, so you know your really vegan digs it. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code CNF at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. And because it's affiliate, Brendan only gets paid if you buy stuff. So if you're going to buy this stuff, think about using this promo code. I like the sound of that. And, and, you know, Black Square really has nothing to do with how I show up in the world or how I'm treated when I go to a job or what education my son is getting, right? Like that, a Black Square is immaterial. I want I want work that actually will impact um, the way that I, I live and, and can feel safe in this world. Hey there. CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Yay! Been real excited to share this one. This one's been in the can for a while. We've got Allison Mariella Dazer. She's here to talk about her book, Running While Black Finding Freedom in a Sport That Wasn't Built for Us. It's published by Portfolio. I shared a ways back in my rage against the algorithm newsletter that Allison's book isn't just a great read, it's an important book. At times, it's an uncomfortable book. But as one of my favorite Peloton instructors says, with challenge comes change, and man, do we need to affect change. And Allison's uh, something of a spearhead in that. Some would argue everything's fine. I'd argue that, um, no, everything's not fine, and it's way more complicated than just work harder. I have people in my family who believe it's as simple as that. Okay, as, as an aside, I, I hate doing this, but it's an, it's an aside, and I, I'm going to that side. I have, I have a niece who, a few years ago, showed me her parents' new Peloton bicycle. I don't have one, uh, though we subscribe to the app and use our own more affordable bicycle. I looked at my wife in front of this Peloton bicycle a few years ago, and I said, we need to get you one of these. And my niece raised her eyebrows and said, better work harder. And I was taken aback. And sure, yes, maybe we don't make as much money as they do, but it doesn't mean we're destitute. Hell, I have a podcast. We have enough. And the implication that we or I, I don't work hard coming from a 12-year-old was especially insulting. Wow, okay, all right, sorry, that was uncalled for. But the whole, if you just work hard, you'll get where you want to go, and it's as simple as that, is pretty bogus. I think we can all agree. Actually, we can all agree, but that's where I stand on that. Sure, you want to control the controllables, and working hard, however you define it, is one way to give yourself the best chance at whatever you define success, or however you define success, but... You expose your ignorance of privilege if you think merely hard work is the only ticket to moving up the social ladder. Fuck me. Make sure you're heading over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Just click the lightning bolt on my website at brendanomero.com. 
or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Depending on how proficient you are at typing, you might just want to go to brendanomero.com. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. If you dig the show, consider sharing it with your networks so we can grow the pie and get this CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. And boy, don't I know that I need the juice daily. It's been a slog lately. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts, so the wayward CNFer might say, shit, I'll give that a shot. Also, patreon.com slash CNFpod. Starting to retool the the tiers so it's more some one-to-one coaching things. I might try to do some live streaming type thing. I doubt anyone will come. The happy hour, the last happy hour I did for newsletter subscribers, zero people showed up, so I kind of stopped doing it. Yeah, take that. Shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. It's not a paid plug. I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product because I drink way too much regular alcohol. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards, like, T-shirts and uh, the occasional six-pack. Give it a shot. Okay, a little more about Allison. Her accomplishments and roles are too long to list in full, but here's a snippet from her website, allisonmdazer.com. She's multi-talented, a founder, a doer, an activist, a connector, and an unapologetically straightforward communicator with a passion for community health. Allison came to running organically following a period of depression when a black friend and role model trained for and completed a marathon. Allison is the founder of Harlem Run, an NYC-based running movement and Run for All Women, which has raised more than $150,000 for Planned Parenthood and $270,000 for Black Voters Matter. She is co-founder and former chair of the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, a nonprofit that unites the running industry to provide resources, measure progress, and hold the industry accountable to equitable employment, leadership, and ownership positions, and improve inclusion, visibility, and access for black, indigenous, and people of color. She's a pretty special woman, and I hope you'll join me in welcoming Allison to the pod, Riff. Too uh, with the with these conversations, just kind of the act of writing, the practice of writing, and uh, and sometimes the act of uh, not writing, like maybe when we're procrastinating. Like mm. for for instance, like this morning, I was doing some dishes and cleaning the kitchen, like before my day was starting. I'm like, you know, if I save these dirty dishes for later, it might mean I don't have to do the things that I'm supposed to be doing later. <laughs> I'm like. I'm, I'm like, this isn't good. I don't want to be this productive yet. I could use this to make sure I'm not being productive later. So. <laughs> I know. What a weird line of thought, but I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Like for, for you, perhaps, you know, whether it's for your writing or anything else you might be involved with, how, how does your procrastination manifest and how do you maybe uh, learn to dance with it? Well, my favorite thing to do is to write lists. And on those lists, I put mundane tasks so that I can at least get some wins. So for example, on my list for today, I have 
read text messages. <laughs> I mm-hmm. have drink water. I have things that I know that I have to do, but what what I think about is it actually gets me going, right? Like if I have this list and it's all really insurmountable tasks, like difficult things to do, then I'll just never start the list. But if I can start checking off the mundane things, then I sort of, it's like a snowball effect. I'm doing things, I'm getting something done, and it'll allow me to get to the larger, more complicated tasks eventually. I typically still save those for the very end. Oh, and the best is like when you do something and then you're like, oh, I didn't put that on my to-do list. So you put it on your to-do list anyway. Yeah, of course. And then you cross it out and you get the satisfaction. That is a key part of procrastination. (laughs) (laughs) And and a lot of people have different uh, practices about how they make sure that they're, you know, getting, getting the work done. All the more important when there's a looming deadline or even a deadline that seems far off, but it's actually not that far off. And mm-hmm. you could put it, you technically could put off some work for another day, but then you're like, you know what? I got to get some stuff done. And having that kind of practice is what kind of at least gets you to, to the page and that blinking cursor. Uh, mm-hmm. So for you, like what are maybe some idiosyncratic ways that you, you psych yourself up to in your practice to get the work done? There's typically, there's a hard deadline for, my day because I have to pick my son up from school. Right. So even when I'm procrastinating, I know that, well, the latest I can pick my son up from school is 6 PM. But if I pick him up at 6 PM, he's the only kid in class. And I feel badly because I mean, he loves it. He gets to play by himself with all of the toys and nobody's trying to take the toys from him, but I feel bad Mm -hmm. that he's the last kid left in class. So that means I want to get there by five 30 when there's still a couple of kids and so if, even if I've procrastinated all day, around 3 p.m., 3 p.m., it starts to hit me like, oh, my gosh, my life is about to be chaos again, right? Because when my <laughs> son gets home, it's chaos. So that's usually when the fire gets in me, if I've waited all day long. Another thing that I do, which is procrastination, but it's also part of the process, is I'll go for a run. And of course, anybody who's a runner who's listening knows this, that that's when I often get some of my best ideas. And Um, It's scientifically proven, in fact, you know, it just allows you to process information differently. And the idea of moving when you're feeling stuck is a beautiful way of, you know, doing something about it, right? Like you're feeling stuck on the page, you're feeling stuck with an idea, well, get up and get your body moving. And that can help you move through whatever it is. So I often come back from a run and either I've as I'm running consciously or not, I'm playing around with word order or trying to work through something that wasn't making sense. And I get back and I feel like something flows out of me, right? It may not be the best written stuff, but I get through that stuck moment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I I love the idea of either going for a long walk or even a, a run in that sort of meditative repetition, physical movement does have a way of massaging some things out of your head and sometimes uh, Mm -hmm. just random things pop in your head like oh that could be a like a good like epigraph quote like I never really Mm -hmm. connected those dots or like a good turn of phrase comes and and for you do you typically like will you actually physically write something down or do you like talking to a voice memo to kind of like make sure you trap those things yeah. So if I'm on a run, I will, I will talk into a voice note that also, you know, as you were talking, I was realizing that it's not just in running. So the thing about writing is that, um, yes, some of it, you know, you have to physically sit there and write with a pen and pencil or write on your computer, but 
it's always going on in your mind, right? Like I'm always writing things in my mind. So it means that oftentimes I'm doing even I'm doing the dishes or I'm driving, right? Like you're doing something completely unrelated and you see something that like sparks a thought. I wish I could actually see my brain on a brain scan <laughs> as I'm doing ordinary mundane things and see like I'm washing dishes. I see bubbles. Bubbles makes me think of this, which makes me think of this, which solves this big question that I had in a, in a book. Right. So that's, that's one of the beautiful things about writing. I think when you're, when you are a writer, you're always grappling with something in your head. And I forgot the question itself, but I wanted to Oh, yeah. Add. No, I think it was just, uh, I kind of answered it. It was just like, you know, speaking to it as wonderfully as you did, but oh, also like yeah. recording it as like a voice memo or like yeah. something I yeah. run with a pencil and like a, a write on rain notebook. So even if it gets wet from sweat, it'll still work. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and so, yeah, I, I'm a kind of an analog guy uh, when I can be. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I like to just have a notebook and pe- pencil. Yeah, I well, I do have that next to my bed because sometimes I'll um, wake up with a dream that maybe isn't even connected to something I'm working on, but that I want to write down something really struck me. So I keep that by the side of my bed. Yeah, because even the act of writing, like the the writer's mind is like really always at work, like you were, mm-hmm. were saying, be it doing dishes or vacuuming it or any other you know menial chore that we have to do on a day to day. And, uh, mm-hmm. but it is very much like a, like a dreamscape. Cause if you don't ca- mm-hmm. capture it, like it will go away and it makes it, it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's a, uh, it's like, you always got to capture it. You're like, Oh yeah, I'll remember. I'll write it down later. And it, you always forget it. And it's the worst. Exactly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and there's nothing worse. You sit there and you just like strain trying to pull out of your brain something that's no longer there. <laughs> as a as a reader, uh, who are some influential voices that helped inform, you know, the writer that you've become? Mm. You know, I think for me, I'm, I'm a lover of history. And so there's a lot of I read a lot of books on history, but for this book in particular, for, for Running While Black, I'm thinking about, um, there's, she's a lawyer, uh, and a professor. Her name is Elise Brody. And she does a lot of writing on physical space and segregation and, or racialized space. Also, Elijah Anderson is a sociologist that writes on racialized space and, reading the two of them, the way that they're able to breathe life into something that's rather dry is something that I wanted to do in my book, right? So talking about the ways that, the the way that they're able to look at space and describe the racialized context, the the feelings of people in that space um, really struck me. And I wanted to make sure when people were reading my book that, that they could understand that. Because I know that for most white people, I'd say they see space as just space, right? Like the outdoors is just the outdoors. This part of town is just this part of town, right? But Elise Brody, uh, Elijah Anderson, fill in all of the historical and present context to help you understand a space is never just a space. It exists within this context, um, sending meanings to people about who belongs, about what activities are allowed in these spaces. I think even just, I mean, that's sociology in general. Now I'm so sort of going on a, on a tangent, but I remember my, my mom is a sociologist and I remember sitting in one of her classes as a kid and talking about something as simple as look at how people line up for the bus, right? We never talk about how many feet you're supposed to keep between people, but when people are lined up for a bus, they're all lined up with the same amount of space between them, 
Like, isn't that fascinating hmm. that we sort of just receive, we don't, we can't probably pinpoint where exactly we first received that message, but this message of how you occupy space, how close is too close. And if somebody is right behind you, you know, touching you, you'll say, yo, like move back. <laughs> You're too close. Yeah. Right. But sociology looks at that, like seeks to understand how we get these messages, how we make sense of the world, how we show up in the world. And that really was um, something that I wanted to be part of my work. Yeah, and speaking of of history, I, I love there's a you know of countless wonderful vignettes that you recount in in your book, and there's like uh, your father telling you about how like Napoleon you know sold mm. the you know uh, well that uh, you know uh, yeah for the Louisiana Purchase you know for, you know land land you know co opted from you know natives peoples to fund his wars, but like that he fundamentally forgot to or most textbooks don't mention. The, the Haitian victory and the overthrow mm-hmm. of the French colonists there. And, and you were like, you remember thinking like, how is this possible that I know more than a textbook? And mm-hmm. I think that's really prescient now with so much of the book banning and, and so much that we're seeing, especially in uh, Southern conservative states that it's like, you know, if we don't have those in the textbooks, it's like, oh my God, like we're gonna, it, there is such erasure going on. Exactly. You know, and it's what I always say is that if if this history weren't important and significant, then people wouldn't be fighting so hard to erase it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that helps you understand just how important it is to know these stories. And it's really frightening because I have a three-year-old and at least I'm in a position to, you know, I'm, I'm curious and I'm always, uh, and I love history, so I'll always be a part of my son's education. But knowing that he'll be in school and that he won't be learning what actually happened, right? History is ultimately told by those in power. So I'll have to be critical every step of the way, ensuring that he knows not just what they tell him in school, but actually the full story and understanding different perspectives and recognizing that who's a hero and who's a villain is really a matter of who's telling the story, right? Who is, uh, who, whose perspective is, is being presented. Yeah, I to to that point, I just go back to when I was in elementary school in the '80s, and you know, around I don't know the you know Thanksgiving or like Columbus Day, you know, all this, yeah, mm. uh, especially Thanksgiving, you know, kids are dressed like as you know pilgrims, and then mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and now what we would definitely deem as insensitive uh, Native attire, mm-hmm. and it's just like, well, that would be patently inappropriate now, but it was just like something that was like totally. Uh, accepted at that time. And it's like, you know, if you scrub, scrub the books and scrub the history, you, you start to get that very sanitized, uh, childlike version of things that are uh, very much, uh, you know, not, uh, should not be sanitized. Yeah. Right. I mean, and who, who is the story serving, right? This idea yeah. that the, I remember learning that the pilgrims and Native Americans like had a feast together, right? Yeah. And that, that serves to make the pilgrims and, you know, white colonizers seem like what they did was innocuous, that it was just, oh, they just, they came to visit and the people welcomed them and then gave them their land. And it's like, no, there was a genocide, right? Like the land, we stole the land. Well, not we, I can't say that from me personally, right? But that the history of this country is stealing land and resources from people and making it their own. So the story, we, we have to remember also that the stories that are told serve a particular narrative and people. It's not without consequence that we tell the story the way that we do. 
I love at the start of the book how you have like this concurrent timeline uh, mm. that that runs side by side. And, you know, for you, how important was that to kind of, you know, lay out this this map essentially right at the start? The, the story of the timeline actually it came to me because I was thinking as I was writing this book, I was thinking about um, the running boom story. And the story of the running boom is that in 1963, Bill, Bill Bowerman puts a call out in Eugene, Oregon for folks to join him for the run at Hayward Field. And, you know, 2000 men, women and children come. And I remember thinking about that story and the sort of fantasy around that story and romanticism around that story and then seeing images and recognizing that all of those people were white people who joined him. And so I started to think to myself, well, what was the country like in 1963 for black people, right? Like if no black people were showing up, what were black people doing? And that was the start of me thinking, wow, this timeline is really powerful. Because in 1963, black people could not vote. Black and white people could not get married. Segregation was the law of the land, right? Um, so thinking about that duality of, of white people being called to the outdoors to move freely when black people's rights were, we didn't even have the rights that, that white people had, right? We were, we were still being constrained and controlled at this time when white people were being called outdoors. Maybe to start wondering, okay, what other significant moments can I, can I find? So I, I, because I'm a history buff, 1896 has been in my memory as the first modern Olympic games. And also the year of the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling, which institutionalized racism, right? Which, which said that separate is equal. Um, so I thought about, wow, the modern Olympics, right? Which we look at as evidence of how s smart and uh, powerful and, and, and modern we are, right? It's, it's a symbol of, of all the things that we love about our country at the same time that we're saying that black people are not deserving um, or that separate is equal, which we later, of course, we know that separate is not equal, right? So I started to think about this and I said, okay, I have to put this in the book and I want it to be the first thing that people read because it's confrontational, right? Like in many cases, it's history that people don't know and certainly they've never seen it, seen it side by side. So I want people to feel immediately that they're sort of like hit in the face with this. And then as they read the book, They'll return to it in particular moments when I'm citing history or when something comes to mind, they'll have this resource to return to and it'll be even more enlightening as the book goes on. Yeah, in 1963 also, that that is a, a neat number in a sense that it's essentially 100 years, give or take, to the day of the Emancipation Proclamation, roughly. Mm -hmm. And it's just like here 100 years later, and then you get to have a reinterrogation of the progress or the lack thereof at, at that point in time, too. Right. And, you know, we're just after Juneteenth, which is the celebration of uh, freedom in Texas, when, you know, two years after the Emancipation, emancipation Proclamation, proclamation um, enslaved people in Texas find out about that proclamation and find out about their freedom, right? So recognizing also that freedom in this country has always been conditional for Black people. And even to this day, our sense of, of freedom and ability to move in the outdoors and do mundane things without being murdered or, or questioned um, is, remains conditional. Getting to your point about uh... Elise Brody and how she, you know, you said she can bring life into, you know, dry subjects. And that was a kind of a central ethos to you as you were writing this book uh, was, you know, the the f early parts of the book are, are very, very like 
very personally driven from you and kind of like your your journey to running. And I would say the second half is is you moving into more activism role, talking about much more difficult subjects in like pills, pill going down the 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 mm. throat uh, like sideways. And you're like, oh, this is this is tough. It's tough stuff. Mm-hmm. So was that something for you just structurally? You're like, here's, you know, here I'm going to be your vector to tell the story. Like, let's learn a little bit about me before we start pivoting over to this side of the story. I wanted to make sure that people in reading this book, that they felt a connection to me to understand who I was and why ultimately I'm the person telling this book, but also so that as I was telling these really difficult truths, they were already invested in me. So they would come they would see it through my eyes and come to it with more empathy, right? Because I think a lot of times, I mean, particularly right now in this country, there's a lot of division and it's, it's in many cases, it's because we're not seeing each other as human beings. We're not seeing each other as people who want to feel a sense of belonging, who wants their, who want their basic needs met, who want to feel a sense of safety, right? We're seeing um, each other as, as potentially taking something from one another, right? That we're, it's a zero sum game and we're against each other. So in starting this book, telling my story, sort of getting people on my side and to understand who I am, it would then allow people when it gets to these really controversial or uncomfortable things to, to be disarmed and be more willing to understand and see things from my perspective, perhaps in a new way that they otherwise never would have considered. Yeah, and you write early in the book that, uh, let's see, from a very early age, people had told me I was going to be, you know, quote, somebody. And since I was not, failure became another layer to a deepening depression. And drinking offered the easiest means of avoiding my life. And and uh, I like, can definitely, you know, attest to to that. Sometimes the, the drinking part to just try to numb yourself to things. So, mm. I don't know, just kind of like take us to that moment, you know, where you know, where you were at that moment and how you began to pull yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and if I'm honest, right, like even sometimes now drinking still seems like it would offer the easiest solution. I know better now, so I don't actually (laughs) act on that impulse. But when you're when you're feeling badly about yourself, the easiest thing to do is escape from that feeling and to try not to think about it. So that's what alcohol and sleeping pills and other risky behavior was really offering for me, right? It's not that I I was looking to hurt myself. I was looking to not feel what I was feeling or not feel it as deeply and not have to be in that place, right? Which is why running and movement offered me a way out. And it's something that I mentioned at the beginning, that this idea of when you're feeling stuck, whether it's um, emotionally stuck or intellectually stuck, movement can help you get get out of that. I now know that. I now know that running is is a is a positive coping mechanism. At the time, drinking and sleeping and all of that was what it didn't get me through, but it got me away from those feelings at least uh, temporarily, you know. And I'm really lucky that I survived that. There's there's people I'm sure who have drank less, taken less pills and who are no longer here, right? It really was me gambling with my life because I didn't value my life because I couldn't see that there's a possibility that tomorrow could be better. And I'm, I'm thankful that there, there must've been some kind of, I'm not a, I'm not a spiritual religious person, um, but there was certainly someone 
um, looking out for me and, and allowing me the opportunity to get through that. Yeah, and what did running offer you in that moment and to help to help you, you know, out of that and cope cope a bit better? Mm-hmm. Well, I was promised that if I just trained for 16 weeks, I would run a marathon. And when you are existing in a space as I was, where I had nothing to look forward to, I had no job, my father was sick, the person I was dating wasn't a good person for me, right? All of those things felt completely out of my control. And I was offered this guarantee that if I just followed this plan, I would do something that less than 1% of the global population does. That was so significant because I could latch on to that. And I've always been really good at school. I've always been really good at, you know, studying and, and following plans. So that was like a lifeline for me. And, you know, I, sometimes I think about, well, what would have happened if I got like really injured that during my training program or if somehow I wasn't able to complete the marathon? In that state of mind, my world would have crumbled, right? Because I was so attached to this. I now have have different coping mechanisms. And if I get injured, it's not the end of the world. But in that state of mind, I really was just clinging to running, offering me the possibility of something better, the possibility of tomorrow being better than the day before, which I up until that point was lacking. I love at one point in the book as well, where you kind of ruminate over how some people when they're from a very young age, they know they want to be like a doctor or a lawyer or a writer, you know, fill in the blank. And you're like, ah, well, you know, I never had that. But then when you kind of look through your past performances, you, mm-hmm. there's a moment where you uh, dressed up as, uh, I believe you pronounce it Oda Benga. Oda Benga, and, uh-huh. And uh, what, what he stood for. Maybe, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about him and how, influential he was and how that ended up being in in essence, like a stealth symbol for where where your adult life would take you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Oda Benga um, was a a pygmy. So pygmy is somebody who's, you know, smaller stature and um, from Africa, he was brought from Africa to New York to be in the world's fair. And it's still unbelievable when I say that, that, you know, people in this country in the 20th century thought that it was okay to put a man in the World's Fair in a cage as a spectacle, right? And the idea, um, the time, the thinking of the time, the science of the time was that people like Odebenga did not have the intellectual or emotional capacity to even want any different. So him being in a cage was sort of natural. And if he were given the opportunity to read or do anything else, it would be devastating for him because he didn't even have the capacity. So he was in the zoo and uh, in, in the World's Fair, traveled around as a way of showcasing evolution of where we came from, that white folks were beyond this stage of primitiveness that Oda Benga symbolized. And he ultimately ended up um, killing himself um, after you know, the trauma that he experienced. And for me, learning about his story at a young age was even more shocking than it is for me now, because when you're younger, you don't really have an understanding of just how um, how terrible people can be. And I felt a connection to him because somebody who looked like me, right, a Black person was put in the cage and was being paraded around for white people's enjoyment. And I was in private school at the time, and I felt like I was 
having to perform as one of the only black people. I felt like I was having to perform for white people. Of course, you know, this is not, I, I was not under the experiencing the trauma or, or anything to the extent that Odebengo was, but I saw that similarity between um, just being misunderstood, being watched, being thought of in a way that wasn't true to who he really was and who I am. And so I connected with that story and I, I dressed up him for dressed up as him for this moment. And I really thought that for me, it was a pivotal moment in my life. And I thought that, oh, maybe all my classmates will see this too and will understand how I'm feeling. And of course that never happened. Mm -hmm. But back to your point about me never knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up, I realized that was sort of the moment where I started realizing that using my voice and saying the thing that needs to be said and drawing from history to inform the present, that some of that was going to be part of my life, right? Again, I didn't really know what that meant because I had only been presented with the idea of lawyer, doctor, engineer as possible, you know, professions. But I just got this sense that whatever I was going to end up doing would bring all of these pieces together and would allow me to use my voice and my platform for some greater good. Yeah. And when you start uh, the Harlem Runners and I love how you realize that in that moment you, you're looking to make it make a safe space and you're rooted in the present, but then it, it it dawned on you like the that it was really connecting you also to a past of of black endurance runners. And mm -hmm. I love that moment of realization where you're like, oh my god, like uh, there have been black endurance runners going going back decades, and now I'm I'm connected to that in some way, and now I have a chance to further celebrate that. Yeah, and you know, and this is one of the the very cruel things that comes from sanitizing your history and erasing critical moments in history is that black people and people whose history are erased feel completely disconnected. Like we have no past as though we've never done anything significant and as if our lives don't matter. Right. So if you remove people like Martin Luther King Jr. from the curriculum, if you remove stories about slave rebellion, if you remove stories like Ted Corbett and the New York Pioneer Club, then you start to feel like, whoa, I don't belong in these spaces, right? Like running's not for me. And you often hear running is white people shit, right? Like you often hear these phrases because we've been completely disconnected and estranged from our past, which is actually really rich with people who are game changers, people who are talented, people who are, you know, kings and queens, right? So that's, there are many reasons why erasure is, is, is harmful. And that's one of them that we don't, we start thinking that we are the first to do something when really it's part of who we are. So that was a really powerful moment and sort of like in a, a moment where I was like, of course, I'm not the only one, right? Like, of course we've been here because black people do all things and, uh, we're actually responsible for building up so much in this country. Um, of course, we were part of long distance running, too. Yeah. And, it, you know, you write, you write about it so well, how so often black athletes, you know, men and women uh, are like ushered towards like track and field and specifically like, you know, sprinting like that. That's, right. you know, that's the play. That's the sandbox you get. And and that's just uh, it's just so, you know, cruel and unfair. And then it's great to hear you articulate you know, the Ted Corbett's of the world and how how it does go back. And then everything that you're you're building is empowering people to be like, oh, like th this is an option for me. Should I choose to accept it? Exactly. You know, the idea that we're only suited for 
uh, sprinting and jumping comes from very racist ideology about our closer connection to primates and to people and to to the jungle, right? So Mm. this idea that we should be confined to do that is what's problematic. Not that we shouldn't do sprinting and jumping because of it, but we should know that, yes, we can sprint and jump, we can do long distance, we can cycle, we can fish, we can, we can, we can do all things, and we have done all things in history, right? So that's the important distinction, just to open up the possibilities and, and show Black folks that we belong in all spaces. Yeah, and I think you articulate the notion of white supremacy so, so well in a way that I had never quite been able to, let's say, connect the uh, connect certain certain uh, certain dots, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, when we think of white supremacists, we think of like Nazis and like mm-hmm. these hyper racists. And so when when you lump maybe well-meaning white people and be like, well, you're part of the white supremacy, there's you, there's a lot of bristling to be had. Like, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I, you know, blah 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 blah. But you you cite uh, an artist who says white supremacy is not the shark, which would be like the Nazi. It's the water. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. holy shit. Like that is mm-hmm. that is the mm-hmm. hammer that like made me see something that I hadn't really seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's important. And again, you know, when I talk, sometimes it seems like I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I'm not. <laughs> but the idea is that <laughs> it's intentional that we think of white supremacists as the KKK, as people who are overtly racist, right? Because that lets everybody else get away with it in secret, right? But it's a simple white supremacy is really the idea that white people are above all other people. What that translates into is that whiteness is seen as the default. It's centered in every scenario. Things as simple as for a long time when I was a kid, I would have to wear stockings, right? My mom made me wear stockings with dresses and I would go to get stockings and nude, the color nude was white or Mm. was, you know, what would appear nude on white skin. So that signals to me that nude is whiteness, right? Therefore, if I needed something, I needed something that was for Black people, right? If you think about what our our beauty standards are, our beauty standards are based on white European standards of beauty, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes, right? So that signals to everybody else, well, if you're not this then you are not normal, right? Like you're different, you're other. And that's the way that white supremacy shows up. It shows up in, I went to Columbia University, which is one of the best institutions in the world, supposedly. And our curriculum mostly focuses on white European men and their philosophies, right? We Mm -hmm. spend so much time on, um, oh my gosh, now I can't even remember any of their names, which is so funny and so fitting. <laughs> but we we spend so much time focusing on the philosophers and the thinkers and, you know, the Renaissance and um, and, and without looking at other parts of the, the world. And what that sends a message is that, wow, this history is more important. These people are more central to the world being the way that it is. And that's just untrue. Right. But that is that's white supremacy. That is centering whiteness putting whiteness, the story of white people above all other people. Yeah, and and to that point, too, you, you write about having to root out the white supremacy in yourself. And, you mm-hmm. know, you write that I bought into stereotypes about African-Americans and accepted the party line of hard work as the ticket to the American dream. And, it, you know, that gets the idea of how, just how insidious it is that it steeps into, you know, your bloodstream. 
Totally. I mean, I think of two things. So I'll, I'll address that comment specifically. But, you know, when you think about in this country, there is a direct correlation between socioeconomic status and race because of the, the history of institutionalized racism and segregation and, um, and all of that. So what that means is that there's d- disproportionately black people ha- have less access to wealth, own less homes, are in the prison system. So all of that information starts to make you think, well, wow, black people are poor, lazy, more violent, right? But that's not true. It's just that black people have disproportionately have, have not been given the access, the opportunities are criminalized at higher rates, right? So what you're seeing is not you're, what you're seeing is the result of racist practices, not just the natural order of things. Another example is the way that I I hated my hair um, for most of my life. I thought I was really ugly. And that was because I was looking at magazines and television and social media and receiving all these images or receiving all these messages about who was beautiful and what was beautiful. And it didn't align with who I was. Right. So I had to spend time undoing that, recognizing that, no, it's not a matter of comparing myself to these standards. I have to recognize that there's beauty and um, everything else outside of those standards, right? That, That there's not something wrong with me. There's something wrong with this idea that you have to look a certain way or talk a certain way to be received well. Yeah, it's uh, it gets to the point of you know some of the you know queer people I've had on the show too, and they talk mm-hmm. about and write about internalized homophobia and, yes. and and that those things that are built in that just it's this oh my god like talk about a, a toxic cycle that just uh, just it makes you start feeling worse and worse about yourself, and then it just puts your own you, you puts your it just puts yourself at at harm like in self harm yeah. in a lot of ways. You know, and you know I saw this headline recently where it was, I think it's Demi Lovato. Demi Lovato changed their pronouns to they, them. And they were talking about in an article how how stressful and honestly traumatizing it was for them to be in situations where people were always stumbling around the pronouns, always made them feel uncomfortable around the pronouns. And so I think the ultimate outcome of the article was talking about how they were considering changing their pronouns back to she, her. And so conservatives took the that article and changed the title to be that Demi Lovato, uh, that they, them pronoun, using they, them pronouns um, was too difficult for Demi Lovato or was causing Demi Lovato pain, right? What was causing Demi Lovato pain was people's inability to recognize them as they, them. It was not them being non-binary. It was not them using the pronouns, right? It was the reaction of people. It was the transphobia, the homophobia, all of that, that was the problem. But you see how that, that is how how our own identities are used are turned against us, right? We now are the the goal of the article was to say that using they them pronouns itself is harmful, but what in fact is harmful is a society that will not accept people and allow them to show up as their authentic selves. To kind of paraphrase or uh, some of that uh, that that you cited from Kareem Abdul Jabbar, how you just keep pulling on these threads, pulling these threads. You know, I saw something that uh, the brilliant Ibram X. Kendi wrote the other day, you know, talk about pulling a thread and you know, going all the way back to the middle of the Civil War, the Civil War and the, you know, the, the free, the freedom, the quote, freedom of enslaved people. And it's and it's how like the the building blocks were like right there. And they were you know, saying like, you know, you can't 
you know, say, you know, we're free and not give us land and the, you know, mm. give land, then they took that land back. And then so there's the domino effects of not being able to secure generational wealth on right. and on and on and on. And here we are 150 some odd years later. And it's like, that's why progress is so damn slow. It's like, cause those white supremacists and the white supremacy of the day carrying through to today has, exactly. has really, it's, it, that's the cult, that's the water and you know, to borrow that term again. Right. I mean, and that again is why I'm, I'm like really pushing this point of why, why they don't want us to know our history, because yeah. if you know those facts, then you see the connection, right? You see how the history of slavery, then yes, people, you know, gaining freedom, but not having access to land and all those previous generations of no wealth, but you have other white people who have uh, white people and in institutions like Harvard, for example, who have benefited from, from slavery, right? So the playing field was never even. And in fact, what it does is it just becomes, it just gets the, the, the playing field for black folks. It continues to flatline where the, the accumulation of wealth continues to build for white folks. Right. So this is why if you don't know your history, then you can't connect those dots. You can't see how the wealth gap today is directly connected to all of these historical practice, practices of racism. You might think, oh, it's because black people are lazy or not as smart or whatever else. And, and that is all of the reason behind getting rid of history and banning certain books that allow people to have this more complex understanding of why the world is the way that it is. Yeah. And there are some some people I, I know, like family members who just like don't want to hear that. They'd be like, you know, I yeah. worked hard for everything I have and someone else, sh they should just be able to work hard and get and reap the benefits of that. And like, right. it just doesn't work like that. You're not even recognizing your, your privilege and the base you were born on. And, and the thing is that, and this is where, like, I always, in those moments, I always want to say, nobody is discounting that you worked hard. You yeah. absolutely worked hard, but and you absolutely had obstacles, but none of those obstacles had to do with the color of your skin, yeah. right? And that is what we're saying here. It's not a who worked harder, who deserves what. I believe that we're all deserving of, of safe um, places to live and you know um, access to food and water and the ability to get a free education. I believe we all deserve that. The issue is that there are all of these structures that um, get that get in the way of that. And so for your family members, Maybe they had to, they absolutely had to struggle, but, but the struggle that they had was never associated with their gender, was never associated with their race, was never associated with their religion, right? Like we have to understand that there is, there are still privileges within the struggles that we each have. And I know that for myself, like, yes, yeah. I was born a black woman in a white supremacist country, but I also, I had, I was born middle-class. I had parents who spoke the language. I went to really great schools. Right. All of that has given me an immense amount of privilege that other people don't have. Yeah. That cartoon that you include in the book is like mm. the, just the perfect distillation of what it is. Yeah. It's like same distance, but look at all these all these obstacles. And then, you know, the the cisgendered white guy, just the very definition of privilege is that they don't even have to think about it. It's just a it's non- Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the thing that I also say is that these conversations or these, you know, my book, none of this is meant to make people feel guilty or to feel shameful, but it is meant to have you see the world differently, see your experience differently, and hopefully understand and get curious about other people's experiences and then do something to 
to make it equal, right? What I, for myself, I'm, I'm always thinking about um, disability justice and what are the ways that in living my life, I'm benefiting from being able-bodied, right? The things that I can do, not even think about that other people don't have access to. And that, that, make, that doesn't make me feel bad. That makes me want to fight for equity. That makes me want to make sure that people with disabilities can have access to and experience the things that I take for granted. I love the exchange you have where there was a, a several let's say like uh you know uh white running store owners and they were totally they were like totally in like, like we want to be more inclusive increase equity increase diversity but it, it but it was it, it was such a great exchange and so illustrative of it, it's it, everyone has that honeymoon period this is what we want to do and then when it starts to get real you started mm-hmm. to experience uh, immense pushback from the mm-hmm. language involved and it, the, everyone was getting a, a little gun shy Yes, yes. And you know, that, that continues to happen. Um, Now it's something that I can laugh about and not, not, I don't want to say not take personally, because, you know, it is personal. The feelings are personal. But yeah, you know, it's one thing to, to make statements and to make DEI commitments, which we've seen lots of companies and people do. It's another thing to then operationalize that and to put that into practice. And that's where people get uncomfortable because you have to do something in a way that you've never done before, right? If you continue operating the way that you have, you're going to continue to get the same results. So you have to be disruptive, You ha- which means you're going to make people uncomfortable. You're going to make people do things that they weren't planning to do. You're going to, it's going to require budgets, being just, you know, being used differently and um, different people being centered. And all of that is uncomfortable. So what we often see is that people have really good intentions and then the work and the impact is what's lacking. And I love a good DEI statement as much as anybody else. But what I would prefer is no DEI statement and actual tangible results that lead to more diversity, equity and inclusion. Yeah, it, it gets to the point of where you, if you're centering those those statements uh, on on white people's feelings, then the ball doesn't really move because they, they're worried about alienating, uh, you know, their primarily white customer base. Where maybe yeah, maybe you are going to lose a few, but exactly that's the that's the two steps forward and you're one step back. But net gain if we just and then before you know it, I mean, it might take a little while, but. People will renormalize and be like, oh, okay, you know, here we are now. Here's a new baseline. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's just, um, you know, thankfully, that's this that's the age that we're in where people are holding uh, companies, institutions accountable. Of course, a whole other conversation around like capitalism and whether capitalism can save us to begin with. <laughs> but this idea that we are no longer allowing companies to just to fly below the radar, right? We see that with the North Face, the North Face, and I'm actually a part of this event series with uh, Patty Gonia, this person who is um, gay, drag queen, does work in the outdoors, and the North Face is supporting this tour, and um, the North Face got all of this backlash, but leaned in and said, well, we're going to continue to support this work. But we see Target, for example, recoil and decide that they're not going to sell Pride products, right? So- it is a moment where we're expecting companies to have values, to be vocal about them. And yes, you will absolutely lose some customers, but you will gain others. And I, I just think that's, 
I can't anything that I use in my life, I want to make sure that they are ultimately in line, aligned with my beliefs. And, and that means work from these companies and organizations and institutions. Yeah, it, it struck me, too, that the, the book in, in so many ways, like running, you know, is sort of the, cent, uh, the central vehicle or the, the movement behind it. And it's a, running is kind of like this. It really ends up being kind of uh, or a marathon running in particular. Let's call it endurance running is kind of like an allegory for the racial justice, like mm-hmm. the hardest miles in a marathon are not, it, you know, the whole joke you divide into two halves. It's like the first 20 mm-hmm. miles in the final six. Yes. I feel like a lot of people uh, in that that exchange you had with those running shoe owners and operators that was like the first 20 miles. And when the language mm-hmm. got real, that like that's the final six. And that's where you need to mm-hmm. show the most grit. And yeah. I've. Right. And I feel like your your book sort of is a meta commentary on 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 that, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I ask, will will the running industry have the endurance to keep doing the work? And I, I, I do think that because we are endurance athletes, we are well suited for it. Right. We understand exactly that the two halves of the marathon. We also understand that. Um, the work that we're doing doesn't always immediately pay off that you there's struggle involved, right? Like all, all of that we understand. And it it's, we need to translate that experience into an intellectual one of pushing ourselves beyond our boundaries um, intellectually of pushing ourselves to have conversations and to be in spaces that may cause discomfort, but ultimately allow us to reach our goal, which is racial equity. So I, I do think that we are people who are primed to understand the work ahead of us. It's really a matter of, of, of will people do it? You know, Will people recognize just how essential this is, not just from a moral imperative and that it's good, but that as demographics shift in this country, that this country is going to look very different in 20 years racially and ethnically, and that it's in all of our best interests to acknowledge that and create policy and opportunity that reflects the national demographics of this country. You know, and as you've gone around the country and been on this this blitz of a of a book tour, going to all the running hubs and having these conversations, uh, what has you know that the experience been like? You know, be it what has made you optimistic, and also what, maybe what still frustrates you as you as you mm-hmm. tour. You know, I think what's what makes me optim- optimistic is that people all over the country are providing space for these conversations, right? In most cases, I'm not reaching out to people to ask to be in actually in all cases, right? I'm not reaching out and asking for people to host me. People are reaching out to me, which means that people are interested in having these conversations and um, making a commitment to understand my book and, and the larger context. But again, I think that, you know, what happens when, uh, what happens when resources are tight or what happens when there are other more immediate concerns that take away people's focus on racial equity, right? Oftentimes this work is seen just at these key moments, like somebody will be murdered like Ahmaud Arbery, or um, the government will pass some ridiculous racist law or right there, these inflection points where news media centers on this story and, and people are highly emotional and highly engaged. And then we sort of go back to our daily life. And for white folks, the experience of racism and institutional racism is not part of their daily life. So it's easy for them to forget. So, you know, what happens and, and we're three years out from, you know, 2020 and 
we've definitely seen a decline in people's interests and budgets and attention to this work. But so how do we make sure, again, that the endurance is there? How do we make sure that it's not just when people are in a good mood or feeling like this matters, they do something, that we're actually changing like the policies and the structures so that when these well-meaning people, if they lose their job or they disappear, well, we've actually changed the way that policies are so that it's just, it will forever proceed more equitably, right? We want to make sure that this is, you know, we're, we're not just like putting a topping on a cake, <laughs> we're baking this into the cake. Yeah. And yeah, like all the black squares on Instagram are not going to change that recipe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, black square really has nothing to do with how I show up in the world or how I'm treated when I go to a job or what education my son is getting, right? Like that, a black square is immaterial. I want, I want work that actually will impact um, the way that I, I live and, and can feel safe in this world. And uh, yeah, there's a there's a moment too. I think it's kind of towards the end of the book where you write about equity and inclusion as essential to the end goal of racial justice. And you know, talk about the cake metaphor; like those are key 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 ingredients. And uh, you, you write that Elijah Anderson calls calls uh, canopy spaces or diverse islands of civility, and which you which you think of as inclusive spaces. And uh, diversity alone cannot accomplish that goal. So you know, maybe I, I would just love to hear you like expand on just like the. I guess the those three little legs of the stool, the equity, inclusion, and diversity, and how that formulates and how that informs what ultimately will be like the finish line of like true racial justice. There's a, there's actually another image that I'll start with that people might be familiar with. There's often this image of like three uh, people who are watching a baseball game. The first image is um, this tall guy can actually see over the fence. This other guy, the shorter guy is like right at fence level. And then a really small person can't see anything, right? And because the fence is there. Then there's typically another image where the tall guy is standing, still can see over the fence. And the other two people have uh, stools that allow them to see over the fence. And typically that's, that's said to be equity. But really what you want is just to remove the fence, right? Mm-hmm. If you remove yeah, yeah. the fence then everybody has visibility of what's on the other side, right? So when you think about, so that's one way of looking at equity, that you, equity means that you're removing the barriers so that everybody has access to whatever the thing is. When you're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity simply means different people, right? So you have a whole lot of different people in a place, but if you, which is really what we have in the United States, but diversity alone is not the solution because, Actually, I heard somebody explain this to me as ice cream, ice cream flavors, right? Mm-hmm. That um, the issue isn't like you can have all different ice cream flavors, but if vanilla ice cream is always portrayed as being the best, most tasty ice cream, that's what the problem is, right? Yeah. And that's what happens when you only have diversity. You have all these different people, but whiteness is centered. When you think about inclusion, inclusion is the idea that people feel a sense of belonging. People feel included. People feel like they matter, right? And the last piece, equity, is it's because, and equity is obviously very tied to inclusion. It's because people have what they need for to feel included. That doesn't mean that people have the same thing because we don't all need the same thing, right? What I need to be able to do so let what I need to be able to go running 
um, is a babysitter. <laughs> what mm-hmm. you need to go running may be time off from work. So if you were given a babysitter, you would say, but that doesn't solve my problem, right? So equity is that we're each given what we need in order to achieve whatever the goal is. So that's how the three come together. That's why the three are are important. Some people also throw justice in there, but ultimately you want to make sure that all three sides are addressed so that people can, can show up as their best selves and people can live full, healthy, meaningful lives. Yeah. And it's the proverbial rising tide floats all boats. Like it's not a zero sum game, but if, if so long as that is the playing field that we're on, then exactly. it's not like, yeah, you lose, I win, or vice versa. It's uh... Well, it's, it's only a zero-sum game if you believe that yeah. that we're uh, in scarcity. If you believe that there's not enough to go around, therefore we need to hoard resources, which is what we're doing, right? That's how, that's, that's you know, when you look at the housing crisis, it's not because there's a lot, lack of houses, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? There are actually enough houses for plenty of people. It's the idea that housing is too expensive. We're not allowing people access to that, right? Because we think of, of it as a limited resource. So as long as you're looking at things from a scarcity mindset, the status quo will persist. But if you recognize, if you look at it more as how from abundance, how can we make sure that everybody has access to this, these things? Recognizing that once we're in community with each other, that uh, we'll look out for each other. And this is not like pie in the sky, right? This is just uh, leaning into the better parts of our humanity and not into this scarcity, zero-sum, dog-eat-dog. Well, I love it. Well, Allison, I love to bring these conversations down for a landing by asking you, the guest, uh, for a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. And that's going to just be pretty much anything you're excited about, be it a TV show, a book, or a new kind of pen that you've, that you've mm-hmm. experimented with. So I'd just extend that to you as we bring our conversation down for a landing. Interesting. Well, I actually, I want to recommend that folks watch Black Mirror. A new season is out. I would say this is probably not the best season. I think this is season five, maybe there's season one was amazing. But what I really like about Black Mirror is that it's sort of it's satirical and it's a commentary on how we are living. And it just really allows you to think about, you know, is the way that society is is operating, is that um, is that the best we can do? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, brace yourself though, because it's a little dark, but black mirror, I love it. I'm, I'm binging this last season and absolutely worth watching, but with somebody so that you can share ideas and, you know, dig in afterwards. Well, fantastic. Amazing. So great to have a conversation with you, Allison, about just the the wonderful work you're doing in your incredible book. And so I just want to thank you for carving out the time and thanks so much for the work. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Allison for those insights and her generosity. It's a great talk. Hey, don't forget to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm substack at brendanamero.com. Hey, hey, click the lightning bolt or go to rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. That newsletter and the podcast subscribers, that's really all I care about. Why? It's elective, permission-based. If you want to really level up your support, you can go to patreon.com slash dnfpod. I just finished a series of coaching calls where I spoke with members about what they're working on and sending them transcripts and audio recordings of our chats so they can have it for future reference. Um, pretty good value, I think. So I think we're looking into doing some more of that stuff. 
down the line, I'm going to retool the tiers a little bit. Uh, uh, nothing resembling a parting shot this week, so I just want to, I just, I just don't, I don't have it in me this week. I hope you're okay with that. I bet you are. So if you can't do, interview. See ya!